Chapter 12 Aids to Reading Any aid to reading that lies outside the book being read we may speak of as extrinsic. By intrinsic reading, we mean reading a book in itself, quite apart from all other books. By extrinsic reading, we mean reading a book in the light of other books. So far, we have intentionally avoided mentioning any extrinsic aids to reading. The rules of reading we have set forth are rules of intrinsic reading. They do not include going outside the book to discover what it means. There are good reasons for having insisted up to now on your primary task as a reader, taking the book into your study and working on it by yourself, with the power of your own mind and with no other aids. But it would be wrong to continue insisting on this. Extrinsic aids can help, and sometimes they are necessary for full understanding. One reason why we have said nothing about extrinsic reading up to now is that intrinsic and extrinsic reading tend to fuse in the actual process of understanding and criticizing a book. We really cannot help bringing our experience to bear on the tasks of interpretation and criticism and even outlining. We must have read other books before this one. No one starts his reading career by reading analytically. We may not bring to bear our experience both of other books and of life as systematically as we should, but we nevertheless measure the statements and conclusions of a writer against other things that we know from many different sources. Thus, it is common sense to say that no book should be, because no book can be, read entirely and completely in isolation. But the main reason for avoiding extrinsic aids up to this point is that many readers depend on them too slavishly. And we wanted you to realize that this is unnecessary. Reading a book with a dictionary in the other hand is a bad idea, although this does not mean you should never go to a dictionary for the meanings of words that are strange to you. And seeking the meaning of a book that puzzles you in a commentary is often ill-advised. On the whole, it is best to do all that you can by yourself before seeking outside help. For if you act consistently on this principle, you will find that you need less and less outside help. The extrinsic aids to reading fall into four categories. In the order in which we will discuss them in this chapter, they are, first, relevant experiences, second, other books, Third, commentaries and abstracts. Fourth, reference books. How and when to use any of these types of extrinsic aids cannot be stated for every particular case. Some general suggestions can be made, however. It is a common-sense maxim of reading that outside help should be sought whenever a book remains unintelligible to you, either in whole or part, after you have done your best to read it according to the rules of intrinsic reading. The Role of Relevant Experience There are two types of relevant experience that may be referred to for help in understanding difficult books. We have already mentioned the distinction involved when we spoke in Chapter 6 of the difference between common experience and special experience. Common experience is available to all men and women just because they are alive. Special experience must be actively sought, 
and is available only to those who go to the trouble of acquiring it. The best example of special experience is an experiment in a laboratory, but a laboratory is not always required. An anthropologist may acquire special experience by traveling to the Amazon basin, for example, to study the aboriginal inhabitants of a region that has not yet been explored. He thereby gains experience that is not ordinarily available to others and that will never be available to many. For if large numbers of scientists invade the region, it will cease to be unique. Similarly, the experience of the astronauts on the moon is highly special, although the moon is not a laboratory in the ordinary sense of the term. Most men do not have the opportunity of knowing what it is like to live on an airless planet, and it will be centuries before this becomes a common experience if it ever does. Jupiter, too, with its enormously greater gravity, will remain a laboratory in this sense for a long time to come and may always be such. Common experience does not have to be shared by everyone in order to be common. Common is not the same as universal. The experience of being a child of parents, for example, is not shared by every human being, for some are orphans from birth. However, family life is nevertheless common experience, because most men and women in the ordinary course of their lives share it. Nor is sexual love a universal experience, although it is common in the sense we are giving the word common. Some men and women never experience it. But the experience is shared by such a high proportion of humans that it cannot be called special. This does not mean that sexual activity cannot be studied in the laboratory, as in fact it has been. The experience of being taught is not universal either, for some men and women never go to school, but it, too, is common. The two kinds of experience are mainly relevant to different kinds of books. Common experience is most relevant to the reading of fiction, on the one hand, and to the reading of philosophy, on the other. Judgments concerning the verisimilitude of a novel are almost wholly based on common experience. The book, we say, is either true or not true to our experience of life as it is led by most people, ourselves included. The philosopher, like the poet, appeals to the common experience of mankind. He does no work in laboratories or research in the field. Hence, to understand and test a philosopher's leading principles, you do not need the extrinsic aid of special experience. He refers you to your own common sense and your daily observation of the world in which you live. Special experience is mainly relevant to the reading of scientific works. To understand and judge the inductive arguments in a scientific book, you must be able to follow the evidence that the scientist reports as their basis. Sometimes the scientist's description of an experiment is so vivid and clear that you have no trouble. Sometimes illustrations and diagrams help to acquaint you with the phenomena described. Both common and special experience are relevant to the reading of history books. This is because history partakes both of the fictional and the scientific. On the one hand, a narrative history is a story, having a plot and characters, episodes, complications of action, a climax, an aftermath. The common experience 
that is relevant to reading novels and plays is relevant here too. But history is also like science, in the sense that at least some of the experience on which the historian bases his work is quite special. He may have read a document or many documents that the reader could not manage to see without great trouble. He may have done extensive research, either into the remains of past civilizations or in the form of interviews with living persons in faraway places. How do you know whether you're making proper use of your experience to help you understand a book? The surest test is one we have already recommended as a test for understanding. Ask yourself whether you can give a concrete example of a point that you feel you understand. We have many times asked students to do this, only to find that they could not. The students appeared to have understood the point, but they were completely at a loss when called upon to supply an example. Obviously, they had not really understood the book. Test yourself in this way when you're not quite sure whether you've grasped a book. Take Aristotle's discussion of virtue in the Ethics, for example. He says over and over that virtue is a mean between the extremes of defect and excess. He gives some concrete examples. Can you supply others? If so, you have understood his general point. If not, you should go back and read his discussion again. Other Books as Extrinsic Aids to Reading We will have more to say later about syntopical reading, where more than one book is read on a single subject. For the moment, we want to say a few things about the desirability of reading other books as extrinsic aids to the reading of a particular work. Our advice applies particularly to the reading of so-called great books. The enthusiasm with which people embark on a course of reading great books often gives way, fairly soon, to a feeling of hopeless inadequacy. One reason, of course, is that many readers do not know how to read a single book very well. But that is not all. There is another reason, namely, that they think they should be able to understand the first book they pick up without having read the others to which it is closely related. They may try to read the Federalist Papers without having first read the Articles of Confederation and the Constitution. Or they may try all these without having read Montesquieu's The Spirit of Laws Rousseau's The Social Contract, and Locke's Second Treatise of Civil Government. Not only are many of the great books related, but also they were written in a certain order that should not be ignored. A later writer has been influenced by an earlier one. If you read the earlier writer first, he may help you to understand the later one. Reading related books in relation to one another and in an order that renders the later ones more intelligible, is a basic, common-sense maxim of extrinsic reading. The utility of this kind of extrinsic reading is simply an extension of the value of context in reading a book by itself. We have seen how the context must be used to interpret words and sentences to find terms and propositions. Just as the whole book is the context for any of its parts, so related books provide an even larger context that helps you interpret the book you are reading. It has often been observed 
that the great books are involved in a prolonged conversation. The great authors were great readers, and one way to understand them is to read the books they read. As readers, they carried on a conversation with other authors, just as each of us carries on a conversation with the books we read, though we may not write other books. To join this conversation, we must read the great books in relation to one another and in an order that somehow respects chronology. The conversation of the books takes place in time. Time is of the essence here and should not be disregarded. The books can be read from the present into the past or from the past into the present. Though the order from past to present has certain advantages through being more natural, the fact of chronology can be observed in either way. It should be noted, incidentally, that the need to read books in relation to one another applies more to history and philosophy than to science and fiction. It is most important in the case of philosophy, because philosophers are great readers of each other. It is probably least important in the case of novels or plays, which, if they are really good, can be read in isolation, although, of course, the literary critic will not want to confine himself to doing so. How to Use Commentaries and Abstracts A third category of extrinsic aids to reading includes commentaries and abstracts. The thing to emphasize here is that such works should be used wisely, which is to say, sparingly. There are two reasons for this. The first is that commentators are not always right in their comments on a book. Sometimes, of course, their works are enormously useful. But this is true less often than one could wish. The handbooks and manuals that are widely available in college bookstores and in stores frequented by high school students are often particularly misleading. These works purport to tell the student everything he has to know about a book that has been assigned by one of his teachers, but they're sometimes woefully wrong in their interpretations, and besides, as a practical matter, they irritate some teachers and professors. In defense of handbooks, it must be conceded that they are often invaluable for passing examinations. Furthermore, to balance the fact that some teachers are irritated by the errors of handbooks, other teachers use them themselves in their teaching. The second reason for using commentaries sparingly is that even if they are right, they may not be exhaustive. That is, you may be able to discover important meanings in a book that the author of a commentary about it has not discovered. Reading a commentary, particularly one that seems very self-assured, thus tends to limit your understanding of a book, even if your understanding, as far as it goes, is correct. Hence, there is one piece of advice that we want to give you about using commentaries. Indeed, this comes close to being a basic maxim of extrinsic reading. Whereas it is one of the rules of intrinsic reading that you should read an author's preface and introduction before reading his book, the rule in the case of extrinsic reading is that you should not read a commentary by someone else until after you have read the book. This applies particularly to scholarly and critical introductions. They are properly used only if you do your best to read the book first, and then, and only then, apply to them for answers to questions that still puzzle you. If you read them first, they are likely to distort your reading of the book. 
you will tend to see only the points made by the scholar or critic, and fail to see other points that may be just as important. There is considerable pleasure associated with the reading of such introductions when it's done in this way. You have read the book and understood it. The writer of the introduction has also read it, perhaps many times, and has his own understanding of it. You approach him, therefore, on essentially equal terms. If you read his introduction before reading the book, however, you're at his mercy. Heeding this rule, that commentaries should be read after you have read the book that they expound and not before, applies also to handbooks. Such works cannot hurt you if you've already read the book and know where the handbook is wrong, if it is. But if you depend wholly on the handbook, and never read the original book, you may be in bad trouble. And there is this further point. If you get into the habit of depending on commentaries and handbooks, you'll be totally lost if you cannot find one. You may be able to understand a particular book with the help of a commentary, but in general, you'll be a worse reader. The rule of extrinsic reading given here applies also to abstracts and plot digests. They are useful in two connections, but in those two only. First, they can help to jog your memory of a book's contents if you've already read it. Ideally, you made such an abstract yourself in reading the book analytically, but if you've not done so, an abstract or digest can be an important aid. Second, abstracts are useful when you're engaged in syntopical reading and wish to know whether a certain work is likely to be germane to your project. An abstract can never replace the reading of a book, but it can sometimes tell you whether you want or need to read the book or not. How to Use Reference Books There are many kinds of reference books. In the following section, we will confine ourselves mainly to the two most used kinds, dictionaries and encyclopedias. However, Many of the things we will have to say apply to other kinds of reference books as well. It is not always realized, yet it is nevertheless true, that a good deal of knowledge is required before you can use a reference book well. Specifically, four kinds of knowledge are required. Thus, a reference book is an antidote to ignorance in only a limited way. It cannot cure total ignorance. It cannot do your thinking for you. To use a reference book well, you must, first, have some idea, however vague it may be, of what you want to know. Your ignorance must be like a circle of darkness surrounded by light. You want to bring light to the dark circle. You cannot do that unless light surrounds the darkness. Another way to say this is that you must be able to ask a reference book an intelligible question. It will be no help to you if you are wandering, lost, in a fog of ignorance. Second, you must know where to find out what you want to know. You must know what kind of question you are asking and which kinds of reference books answer that kind of question. There's no reference book that answers all questions. All such works are specialists, as it were. Practically, this comes down to the fact 
that you must have a fair overall knowledge of all of the major types of reference books before you can use any one type effectively. There is a third and correlative kind of knowledge that is required before a reference book can be useful to you. You must know how the particular work is organized. It will do you no good to know what you want to know and to know the kind of reference book to use if you do not know how to use the particular work. Thus, there is an art of reading reference books, just as there is an art to reading anything else. There is a correlative art to making reference books, by the way. The author or compiler should know what kind of information readers will seek and arrange his book to fit their needs. He may not always be able to anticipate these, however, which is why the rule that you should read the introduction and preface to a book before reading the book itself applies particularly here. Do not try to use a reference book before getting the editor's advice on how to use it. Of course, not all kinds of questions can be answered by reference books. You will not find in any reference book the answers to the three questions that God asks the angel in Tolstoy's story, What Men Live By, namely, What dwells in man? What is not given to man? And what do men live by? Nor will you find the answers to another question that is also used as the title of a Tolstoy story, How much land does a man need? And there are many such questions. Reference books are only useful when you know which kinds of questions can be answered by them and which cannot. This comes down to knowing the sorts of things that men generally agree on. Only those things about which men generally and conventionally agree are to be found in reference books. Unsupported opinions have no business there, though they sometimes creep in. We agree that it is possible to know when a man was born, when he died, and facts about similar matters. We agree that it is possible to define words and things, and that it is possible to sketch the history of almost anything. We do not agree on moral questions or on questions about the future, and so these sorts of things are not to be found in reference books. We assume in our time that the physical world is orderable, and thus almost everything about it is to be found in reference books. This was not always so. As a result, the history of reference books is interesting in itself, for it can tell us much about changes in men's opinions as to what is knowable. As you can see, we have just been suggesting that there is a fourth requirement for the intelligent use of reference books. You must know what you want to know. You must know in what reference work to find it. You must know how to find it in the reference work. And you must know that it is considered knowable by the authors or compilers of the book. All this indicates that you must know a good deal before you can use a work of reference.
Reference books are useless to people who know nothing. They are not guides to the perplexed. How to use a dictionary As a reference book, the dictionary is subject to all the considerations outlined above. But the dictionary also invites a playful reading. It challenges anyone to sit down with it in an idle moment. There are worse ways to kill time. Dictionaries are full of arcane knowledge and witty oddments. Over and above that, of course, they have their more sober employments. To make the most of these, one has to know how to read the special kind of book a dictionary is. Santayana's remark about the Greeks, that they were the only uneducated people in European history, has a double significance. The masses were, of course, uneducated. But even the learned few, the leisure class, were not educated in the sense that they had to sit at the feet of foreign masters. Education in that sense begins with the Romans, who went to school to Greek pedagogues and became cultivated through contact with the Greek culture they had conquered. It is not surprising, therefore, that the first dictionaries were glossaries of Homeric words intended to help Romans read the Iliad and Odyssey, as well as other Greek literature employing the archaic Homeric vocabulary. In the same way, many of us today need a glossary to read Shakespeare, or, if not Shakespeare, Chaucer. There were dictionaries in the Middle Ages, but they were usually encyclopedias of worldly knowledge comprised of discussions of the most important technical terms employed in learned discourse. There were foreign language dictionaries in the Renaissance, both Greek and Latin, made necessary by the fact that the works that dominated the education of the period were in the ancient languages. Even when the so-called vulgar tongues, Italian, French, English, gradually replaced Latin as the language of learning, the pursuit of learning was still the privilege of the few. Under such circumstances, dictionaries were intended for a limited audience, mainly as an aid to reading and writing worthy literature. Thus we see that from the beginning, the educational motive dominated the making of dictionaries, although there was also an interest in preserving the purity and order of the language. As contrasted with the latter purpose, the Oxford English Dictionary, known familiarly as the OED, begun in 1857, was a new departure in that it did not try to dictate usage, but instead to present an accurate historical record of every type of usage, the worst as well as the best, taken from popular as well as elegant writing. But this conflict between the lexicographer as self-appointed arbiter and the lexicographer as historian, can be regarded as a side issue. For the dictionary, however constructed, is primarily an educational instrument. This fact is relevant to the rules for using a dictionary well as an extrinsic aid to reading. The first rule of reading any book is to know what kind of book it is. That means knowing what the author's intention was and what sort of thing you can expect to find in his work. If you look upon a dictionary merely as a spelling book or guide to pronunciation, you will use it accordingly, which is to say, not well. If you realize that it contains a wealth of historical information, crystallized in the growth and development of language, you will pay attention not merely to the variety of meanings listed under each word, but also to their order and relation. Above all, 
If you are interested in advancing your own education, you will use a dictionary according to its primary intention, as a help in reading books that might otherwise be too difficult, because their vocabulary includes technical words, archaic words, literary allusions, or even familiar words used in obsolete senses. Of course, there are many problems to be solved in reading a book well, other than those arising from an author's vocabulary. And we have warned against, particularly on the first reading of a difficult book, sitting with the book in one hand and the dictionary in the other. If you have to look up too many words at the beginning, you will certainly lose track of the book's unity and order. The dictionary's primary service is on those occasions when you are confronted with a technical word or with a word that is wholly new to you. Even then, we would not recommend looking up even these during your first reading of a good book unless they seem to be important to the author's general meaning. This suggests several other negative injunctions. There is no more irritating fellow than the one who tries to settle an argument about communism or justice or freedom by quoting from the dictionary. Lexicographers may be respected as authorities on word usage, but they are not the ultimate founts of wisdom. Another negative rule is, don't swallow the dictionary. Don't try to get word-rich quick by memorizing a fancy list of words whose meanings are unconnected with any actual experience. In short, do not forget that the dictionary is a book about words, not about things. If we remember this, we can derive from that fact all the rules for using a dictionary intelligently. Words can be looked at in four ways. 1. Words are physical things, writable words and speakable sounds. There must therefore be uniform ways of spelling and pronouncing them, though the uniformity is often spoiled by variations, and in any event is not as eternally important as some of your teachers may have indicated. 2. Words are parts of speech. Each single word plays a grammatical role in the more complicated structure of a phrase or sentence. The same word can vary in different usages, shifting from one part of speech to another, especially in a non-inflected language like English. 3. Words are signs. They have meanings, not one, but many. These meanings are related in various ways. Sometimes they shade from one into another. Sometimes a word will have two or more sets of totally unrelated meanings. Through their meanings, different words are related to one another, as synonyms sharing in the same meaning, even though they differ in shading, or as antonyms through opposition or contrast of meanings. Furthermore, it is in their capacity as signs that we distinguish words as proper or common names according as they name just one thing or many that are alike in some respect, and as concrete or abstract names, according as they point to something we can sense or refer to some aspect of things that we can understand by thought but not observe through our senses. Finally, four, words are conventional. They are man-made signs. That is why every word has a history 
a cultural career in the course of which it goes through certain transformations. The history of words is given by their etymological derivation from original word roots, prefixes, and suffixes. It includes the account of their physical changes, both in spelling and pronunciation. It tells of the shifting meanings, and which among them are archaic and obsolete, which are current and regular, which are idiomatic, colloquial, or slang. A good dictionary will answer all of these four different kinds of questions about words. The art of using a dictionary consists in knowing what questions to ask about words and how to find the answers. We have suggested the questions. The dictionary itself tells you how to find the answers. As such, it is a perfect self-help book, because it tells you what to pay attention to and how to interpret the various abbreviations and symbols it uses in giving you the four varieties of information about words. Anyone who fails to consult the explanatory notes and the list of abbreviations at the beginning of a dictionary has only himself to blame if he is not able to use it well. How to Use an Encyclopedia Many of the things we have said about dictionaries apply to encyclopedias also. Like the dictionary, the encyclopedia invites a playful reading. It too is diverting, entertaining, and for some people, soothing. But it is just as vain to try to read an encyclopedia through as a dictionary. The man who knew an encyclopedia by heart would be in grave danger of incurring the title Idiot Savant, Learned Fool. Many people use a dictionary to find out how to spell and pronounce words. The analogous employment of an encyclopedia is to use it only to look up dates and places and other such simple facts. But this is to underuse or misuse an encyclopedia. Like dictionaries, such works are educational as well as informational tools. A glance at their history will confirm this. Though the word encyclopedia is Greek, the Greeks had no encyclopedia and for the same reason that they had no dictionary. The word meant to them not a book about knowledge, a book in which knowledge reposed, but knowledge itself, all the knowledge that an educated man should have. It was again the Romans who first found encyclopedias necessary. The oldest extant example is that of Pliny. Interestingly enough, the first alphabetically arranged encyclopedia did not appear until about 1700. Most of the great encyclopedias since then have been alphabetical. It is the easiest of all arrangements, and it made possible great strides in encyclopedia making. Encyclopedias present a different problem from word books. An alphabetical arrangement is natural for a dictionary. But is the world, which is the subject matter of an encyclopedia, arranged alphabetically? Obviously not. Well, then how is the world arranged and ordered? This comes down to asking how knowledge is ordered. The ordering of knowledge has changed with the centuries. All knowledge was once ordered in relation to the seven liberal arts, grammar, rhetoric, and logic, the trivium, arithmetic, geometry, astronomy, and music, the quadrivium. Medieval encyclopedias reflected this arrangement. Since the universities were arranged according to the same system, and students studied according to it also, the arrangement was useful in education. The modern university is very different from the medieval one, and the change is reflected in modern encyclopedias. 
The knowledge that they report is divided up in fiefs or specialties that are roughly equivalent to the various departments of the university. But this arrangement, although it forms the backbone structure of an encyclopedia, is masked by the alphabetical arrangement of the material. It is this infrastructure, to take a term from the sociologists, that the good reader and user of an encyclopedia will seek to discover. It is true that it is primarily factual information that he wants from his set, but he should not be content with facts in isolation. The encyclopedia presents him with an arrangement of facts, facts in relation to other facts. The understanding, as contrasted with the mere information that an encyclopedia can provide, depends on the recognition of such relations. In an alphabetically arranged encyclopedia, these relations are to a large extent obscured. In a topically arranged encyclopedia, they are, of course, highlighted. But topical encyclopedias have many disadvantages, among them the fact that most readers are not accustomed to using them. Ideally, the best encyclopedia would be one that had both a topical and an alphabetical arrangement. Its presentation of material in the form of separate articles would be alphabetical, but it would also contain some kind of topical key or outline, essentially a table of contents. A table of contents is a topical arrangement of a book, as opposed to an index, which is an alphabetical arrangement. As far as we know, there is no such encyclopedia on the market today, but it would be worth the effort to try to make one. In default of the ideal, the reader must fall back on the help and advice provided him by an encyclopedia's editors. Any good encyclopedia includes directions about how to use it effectively, and these should be read and followed. Often, these directions require that the user go first to the set's index before turning to one of the alphabetically arranged volumes. Here, the index is serving the function of a table of contents, though not very well for it gathers together under one heading references to discussions in the encyclopedia that may be widely separated in space, but that are nevertheless about the same general subject. This reflects the fact that although an index is, of course, alphabetically arranged, its so-called analyticals, that is, the breakdowns under a main entry, are topically arranged. But the topics themselves must be in alphabetical order, which is not necessarily the best arrangement. Thus the index of a really good encyclopedia, such as Britannica, goes part of the way toward revealing the arrangement of knowledge that the work reflects. For this reason, any reader who fails to use the index has only himself to blame if the work does not serve his needs. There are negative injunctions associated with the use of encyclopedias, just as there are for dictionaries. Encyclopedias, like dictionaries, are valuable adjuncts to the reading of good books. Bad books do not ordinarily require their presence. But, as before, it is wise not to enslave yourself to an encyclopedia. Again, as with dictionaries, encyclopedias are not to be used for the settling of arguments where these are based on differences of opinion. Nevertheless, they should be used to end disputes about matters of fact as quickly and permanently as possible. Facts should never be argued about in the first place. An encyclopedia makes this vain effort unnecessary, because encyclopedias are full of facts. Ideally, they are filled with nothing else. Finally, although dictionaries usually agree in their accounts of words, 
Encyclopedias often do not agree in their accounts of facts. Hence, if you are really interested in a subject and are depending on encyclopedic treatments of it, do not restrict yourself to just one encyclopedia. Read more than one, and preferably ones written at different times. We noted several points about words that the user should keep in mind when he consults a dictionary. In the case of encyclopedias, the analogous points are about facts, for an encyclopedia is about facts as a dictionary is about words. 1. Facts are propositions. Statements of fact employ words in combination, such as Abraham Lincoln was born on February 12, 1809, or the atomic number of gold is 79. Facts are not physical things, as words are, but they do require to be explained. For thorough knowledge, for understanding, you must also know what the significance of a fact is, how it affects the truth you are seeking. You do not know much if all you know is what the fact is. 2. Facts are true propositions. Facts are not opinions. When someone says it is a fact that, he means that it is generally agreed that such is the case. He never means, or never should mean, that he alone or he together with a minority of observers believes such and such to be the case. It is this characteristic of facts that gives the encyclopedia its tone and style. An encyclopedia that contains the unsupported opinions of its editors is dishonest. And although an encyclopedia may report opinions, for example in a phrase like it is held by some that this is the case, by others that that is the case, it must clearly label them. The requirement that an encyclopedia report the facts of the case and not opinions about it, except as noted above, also limits the work's coverage. It cannot properly deal with matters about which there is no consensus with moral questions, for example. If it does deal with such questions, it can only properly report the disagreements among men about them. 3. Facts are reflections of reality. Facts may be either a. informational singulars, or b. relatively unquestioned generalizations, but in either case they are held to represent the way things really are. The birth date of Lincoln is an informational singular. The atomic number of gold implies a relatively unquestioned generalization about matter. Thus, facts are not ideas or concepts, nor are they theories in the sense of being mere speculations about reality. Similarly, an explanation of reality, or a part of it, is not a fact until and unless there is general agreement that it is correct. There is one exception to the last statement. An encyclopedia can properly describe a theory that is no longer held to be correct, in whole or in part, or one that has not yet been fully validated, when it is associated with a topic, person, or school that is the subject of an article. Thus, for example, Aristotle's views on the nature of celestial matter could be expounded in an article on Aristotelianism, even though we no longer believe them to be true. Finally, 4. Facts are to some extent 
conventional. Facts change, we say. We mean that some propositions that are considered to be facts in one epoch are no longer considered to be facts in another. Insofar as facts are true and represent reality, they cannot change, of course, because truth, strictly speaking, does not change, nor does reality. But not all propositions that we take to be true are really true. And we must concede that almost any given proposition that we take to be true can be falsified by more patient or more accurate observation and investigation. This applies particularly to the facts of science. Facts are also, again to some extent, culturally determined. An atomic scientist, for example, maintains a complicated hypothetical structure of reality in his mind that determines, for him, certain facts that are different from the facts that are determined for and accepted by a primitive. This does not mean that the scientist and the primitive cannot agree on any facts. They must agree, for instance, that two plus two is four, or that a physical whole is greater than any of its parts. But the primitive may not agree with the scientist's facts about nuclear particles, just as the scientist may not agree with the primitive's facts about ritual magic. That was a hard sentence to write, because being culturally determined ourselves, we tend to agree with the scientist rather than the primitive, and were thus tempted to put the second fact in quotation marks. But that is precisely the point. A good encyclopedia will answer your questions about facts. If you remember the points about facts that we have outlined above, the art of using an encyclopedia as an aid to reading is the art of asking the proper questions about facts. As with the dictionary, we have merely suggested the questions. The encyclopedia will supply the answers. You should also remember that an encyclopedia is not the best place to pursue understanding. Insights may be gained from it about the order and arrangement of knowledge. But that, although an important subject, is nonetheless a limited one. There are many matters required for understanding that you will not find in an encyclopedia. There are two particularly striking omissions. An encyclopedia, properly speaking, contains no arguments, except insofar as it reports the course of arguments that are now widely accepted as correct, or at least as of historical interest. Thus, a major element in expository writing is lacking. An encyclopedia also contains no poetry or imaginative literature, although it may contain facts about poetry and poets. Since both the imagination and the reason are required for understanding, this means that the encyclopedia must be a relatively unsatisfying tool in the pursuit of it. Part 3 Approaches to Different Kinds of Reading Matter Chapter 13 How to Read Practical Books In any art or field of practice, rules have a disappointing way of being too general. The more general, of course, the fewer, and that is an advantage. The more general, too, the more intelligible. It is easier to understand the rules in and by themselves. But it is also true that the more general the rules, the more remote they are from the intricacies of the actual situation in which you try to follow them. 
We have stated the rules of analytical reading generally, so that they may apply to any expository book, any book that conveys knowledge in the sense in which we have been using that term. But you cannot read a book in general. You read this book or that, and every particular book is of a particular sort. It may be a history or a book in mathematics, a political tract or a work in natural science, or a philosophical or theological treatise. Hence, you must have some flexibility and adaptability in following the rules. Fortunately, you will gradually get the feeling of how they work on different kinds of books as you apply them. It is important to note here that the fifteen rules of reading, in the form in which they were presented toward the end of chapter 11, do not apply to the reading of fiction and poetry. The outlining of the structure of an imaginative work is a different matter from the outlining of an expository book. Novels and plays and poems do not proceed by terms, propositions, and arguments. Their fundamental content, in other words, is not logical, and the criticism of such works is based on different premises. Nevertheless, it would be a mistake to think that no rules at all apply to reading imaginative literature. In fact, there is a parallel set of rules for reading such books that we will describe in the next chapter. These are useful in themselves, but the examination of them and their differences from the rules for reading expository works also throws light on the latter rules. You need not fear that you will have to learn a whole new set of fifteen or more rules for reading fiction and poetry. The connection between the two kinds of rules is easy to see and state. It consists in the underlying fact, which we have emphasized over and over, that you must ask questions when you read and specifically that you must ask four particular questions of whatever you are reading. These four questions are relevant to any book, whether fiction or non-fiction, whether poetry or history or science or philosophy. We have seen how the rules of reading expository works connect with and are developed from these four questions. Similarly, the rules of reading imaginative literature are also developed from them, although the difference in the nature of the materials read causes some dissimilarities in the development. That being the case, in this part of the book, we will have more to say about these questions than about the rules for reading. We will occasionally refer to a new rule, or to a revision or adaptation of an old one, but most of the time, as we proceed to suggest approaches to the reading of different kinds of books and other materials, we will emphasize the different questions that must be primarily asked and the different kinds of answers that can be expected. In the expository realm, we have noted that the basic division is into the practical and the theoretical, books that are concerned with the problems of action, and books that are concerned only with something to be known. The theoretical is further divisible, as we have noted, into history, science and mathematics, and philosophy. The practical division cuts across all boundaries, and we therefore propose to examine the nature of such books a little further, and to suggest some guidelines and precautions when you read them. The Two Kinds of Practical Books The most important thing to remember about any practical book is that it can never solve the practical problems with which it is concerned. A theoretical book can solve its own problems. But a practical problem can only be solved by action itself. 
When your practical problem is how to earn a living, a book on how to make friends and influence people cannot solve it, though it may suggest things to do. Nothing short of the doing solves the problem. It is solved only by earning a living. Take this book, for example. It is a practical book. If your interest in it is practical, it might, of course, be only theoretical, you want to solve the problem of learning to read. You would not regard that problem as solved and done away with until you did learn. This book cannot solve the problem for you. It can only help. You must actually go through the activity of reading, not only this book, but many others. That is what it means to say that nothing but action solves practical problems. And action occurs only in the world, not in books. Every action takes place in a particular situation, always in the here and now, and under a particular set of circumstances. You cannot act in general. The kind of practical judgment that immediately precedes action must be highly particular. It can be expressed in words, but it seldom is. It is almost never found in books, because the author of a practical book cannot envisage the concrete practical situations in which his readers may have to act. Try as he will to be helpful. He cannot give them concrete practical advice. Only another person in exactly the same situation could do that. Practical books can, however, state more or less general rules that apply to a lot of particular situations of the same sort. Whoever tries to use such books must apply the rules to particular cases and therefore must exercise practical judgment in doing so. In other words, the reader himself must add something to the book to make it applicable in practice. He must add his knowledge of the particular situation and his judgment of how the rule applies to the case. Any book that contains rules, prescriptions, maxims, or any sort of general directions, you will readily recognize as a practical book. But a practical book may contain more than rules. It may try to state the principles that underlie the rules and make them intelligible. For example, in this practical book about reading, we have tried here and there to explain the rules by brief expositions of grammatical, rhetorical, and logical principles. The principles that underlie rules are usually in themselves scientific. That is, they are items of theoretical knowledge. Taken together, they are the theory of the thing. Thus we talk about the theory of bridge building or the theory of contract bridge. We mean the theoretical principles that make the rules of good procedure what they are. Practical books thus fall into two main groups. Some, like this one, or a cookbook, or a driver's manual, are primarily presentations of rules. Whatever other discussion they contain is for the sake of the rules. There are few great books of this sort. The other kind of practical book is primarily concerned with the principles that generate rules. Most of the great books in economics, politics, and morals are of this sort. This distinction is not sharp and absolute. Both principles and rules may be found in the same book. The point is one of relative emphasis. You will have no difficulty in sorting books into these two piles. The book of rules in any field will always be immediately recognizable as practical. The book of practical principles may look at first like a theoretical book. In a sense it is, as we have seen. It deals with the theory of a particular kind of practice. You can always tell it is practical, however. 
the nature of its problems gives it away. It is always about a field of human behavior in which men can do better or worse. In reading a book that is primarily a rule book, the major propositions to look for, of course, are the rules. A rule is most directly expressed by an imperative rather than a declarative sentence. It is a command. It says, Save nine stitches by taking a stitch in time. That rule can also be expressed declaratively, as when we say, A stitch in time saves nine. Both forms of statement suggest, the imperative a little more emphatically, but not necessarily more memorably, that it is worthwhile to be prompt. Whether it is stated declaratively or in the form of a command, you can always recognize a rule because it recommends something as worth doing to gain a certain end. Thus, the rule of reading that commands you to come to terms can also be stated as a recommendation. Good reading involves coming to terms. The word good is the giveaway. That such reading is worth doing is implied. The arguments in a practical book of this sort will be attempts to show you that the rules are sound. The writer may have to appeal to principles to persuade you that they are, or he may simply illustrate their soundness by showing you how they work in concrete cases. Look for both sorts of arguments. The appeal to principles is usually less persuasive, but it has one advantage. It can explain the reason for the rules better than examples of their use. In the other kind of practical books, the kind dealing mainly with the principles underlying rules, the major propositions and arguments will, of course, look exactly like those in a purely theoretical book. The propositions will say that something is the case, and the arguments will try to show that it is so. But there's an important difference between reading such a book and reading a purely theoretical one. Since the ultimate problems to be solved are practical, problems of action, in fields where men can do better or worse, an intelligent reader of such books about practical principles always reads between the lines or in the margins. He tries to see the rules that may not be expressed, but that can nevertheless be derived from the principles. He goes further. He tries to figure out how the rules should be applied in practice. Unless it is so read, a practical book is not read as practical. To fail to read a practical book as practical is to read it poorly. You really do not understand it, and you certainly cannot criticize it properly in any other way. If the intelligibility of rules is to be found in principles, it is no less true that the significance of practical principles is to be found in the rules they lead to, the actions they recommend. This indicates what you must do to understand either sort of practical book. It also indicates the ultimate criteria for critical judgment. In the case of purely theoretical books, the criteria for agreement or disagreement relate to the truth of what is being said. But practical truth is different from theoretical truth. A rule of conduct is practically true on two conditions. One is that it works. The other is that its working leads you to the right end, an end you rightly desire. Suppose that the end an author thinks you should seek does not seem like the right one to you. Even though his recommendations may be practically sound in the sense of getting you to that end, you will not agree with him ultimately. 
and your judgment of his book as practically true or practically false will be made accordingly. If you do not think careful and intelligent reading is worth doing, this book has little practical truth for you, however sound its rules may be. Notice what this means. In judging a theoretical book, the reader must observe the identity of or the discrepancy between his own basic principles or assumptions and those of the author. In judging a practical book, everything turns on the ends or goals. If you do not share Karl Marx's fervor about economic justice, his economic doctrine, and the reforms it suggests, are likely to seem to you practically false or irrelevant. You may think, as Edmund Burke did, for example, that preserving the status quo is the most desirable objective. Everything considered, you believe that to be more important than removing the inequities of capitalism. In that case, you are likely to think that a book like the Communist Manifesto is preposterously false. Your main judgment will always be in terms of the ends, not the means. We have no practical interest in even the soundest means to reach ends we disapprove of or do not care about. The Role of Persuasion This brief discussion gives you a clue to the two major questions you must ask yourself in reading any sort of practical book. The first is, what are the author's objectives? The second is, what means for achieving them is he proposing? It may be more difficult to answer these questions in the case of a book about principles than in the case of one about rules. The ends and means are likely to be less obvious. Yet answering them in either case is necessary for the understanding and criticism of a practical book. It also reminds you of one aspect of practical writing that we noted earlier. There is an admixture of oratory or propaganda in every practical book. We have never read a book of political philosophy, however theoretical it may have appeared, however abstract the principles with which it dealt, that did not try to persuade the reader about the best form of government. Similarly, moral treatises try to persuade the reader about the good life, as well as recommend ways of leading it. And we have tried continuously to persuade you to read books in a certain way, for the sake of the understanding that you may attain. You can see why the practical author must always be something of an orator or propagandist. Since your ultimate judgment of his work is going to turn on your acceptance of the goal for which he is proposing means, it is up to him to win you to his ends. To do this, he has to argue in a way that appeals to your heart as well as your mind. He may have to play on your emotions and gain direction of your will. There is nothing wrong or vicious about this. It is of the very nature of practical affairs that men have to be persuaded to think and act in a certain way. Neither practical thinking nor action is an affair of the mind alone. The emotions cannot be left out. No one makes serious practical judgments or engages in action without being moved somehow from below the neck. The world might be a better place if we did, but it would certainly be a different world. The writer of practical books who does not realize this will be ineffective. The reader of them who does not is likely to be sold a bill of goods without his knowing it. The best protection against propaganda of any sort 
is the recognition of it for what it is. Only hidden and undetected oratory is really insidious. What reaches the heart without going through the mind is likely to bounce back and put the mind out of business. Propaganda taken in that way is like a drug you do not know you are swallowing. The effect is mysterious. You do not know afterwards why you feel or think the way you do. The person who reads a practical book intelligently, who knows its basic terms, propositions, and arguments, will always be able to detect its oratory. He will spot the passages that make an emotive use of words. Aware that he must be subject to persuasion, he can do something about weighing the appeals. He has sales resistance. But this need not be 100%. Sales resistance is good when it prevents you from buying hastily and thoughtlessly. But the reader who supposes he should be totally deaf to all appeals might just as well not read practical books. There's a further point here. Because of the nature of practical problems, and because of the admixture of oratory in all practical writing, the personality of the author is more important in the case of practical books than theoretical. You need know nothing whatever about the author of a mathematical treatise. His reasoning is either good or not, and it makes no difference what kind of man he is. But in order to understand and judge a moral treatise, a political tract, or an economic discussion, you should know something about the character of the writer, something about his life and times. In reading Aristotle's Politics, for example, it is highly relevant to know that Greek society was based on slavery. Similarly, much light is thrown on the prince by knowing the Italian political situation at the time of Machiavelli and his relation to the Medicis, or in the case of Hobbes' Leviathan, that Hobbes lived during the English civil wars and was almost pathologically distressed by social violence and disorder. What does agreement entail in the case of a practical book? We are sure that you can see that the four questions you must ask about any book are somewhat changed in the case of reading a practical book. Let us try to spell out these changes. The first question, what is the book about, does not change very much. Since a practical book is an expository one, it is still necessary in the course of answering this first question to make an outline of the book's structure. However, although you must always try to find out, Rule 4 covers this, what an author's problems were, here, in the case of practical books, this requirement becomes the dominant one. We have said that you must try to discern the author's objectives. That is another way of saying you must know what problems he was trying to solve. You must know what he wanted to do. Because in the case of a practical work, knowing what he wants to do comes down to knowing what he wants you to do and that is obviously of considerable importance. The second question does not change very much either. You must still, in order to answer the question about the book's meaning or contents, discover the author's terms, propositions, and arguments. But here again it is the last aspect of that task, covered by Rule 8, that now looms most important. Rule 8, you will recall, required you to say which of the author's problems he solved and which he did not. The adaptation of this rule that applies in the case of practical books has already been stated. You must discover and understand the means the author recommends for achieving what he is proposing. In other words, if Rule 4, as adapted for practical books, is find out what the author wants you to do, then Rule 8 
as similarly adapted is, find out how he proposes that you do this. The third question, is it true, is changed somewhat more than the first two. In the case of a theoretical book, the question is answered when you have compared the author's description and explanation of what is or happens in the world with your own knowledge thereof. If the book accords generally with your own experience of the way things are, then you must concede its truthfulness, at least in part. In the case of a practical book, although there is some such comparison of the book and reality, the main consideration is whether the author's objectives, that is, the ends that he seeks, together with the means he proposes to reach them, accord with your conception of what it is right to seek and of what is the best way of seeking it. The fourth question, what of it, is changed most of all. If, after reading a theoretical book, your view of its subject matter is altered more or less, then you are required to make some adjustments in your general view of things. If no adjustments are called for, then you cannot have learned much, if anything, from the book. But these adjustments need not be earth-shaking, and above all, they do not necessarily imply action on your part. Agreement with a practical book, however, does imply action on your part. If you are convinced or persuaded by the author that the ends he proposes are worthy, and if you are further convinced or persuaded that the means he recommends are likely to achieve those ends, then it is hard to see how you can refuse to act in the way the author wishes you to. We recognize, of course, that this does not always happen. But we want you to realize what it means when it does not. It means that despite his apparent agreement with the author's ends and acceptance of his means, the reader really does not agree or accept. If he did both, he could not reasonably fail to act. Let us give an example of what we mean. If after completing part two of this book, you, one, agreed that reading analytically is worthwhile, and two, accepted the rules of reading as essentially supportive of that aim, then you must have begun to try to read in the manner we have described. If you did not, it is not just because you were lazy or tired. It is because you did not really mean either one or two. There is one apparent exception to this contention. Suppose, for example, that you read an article about how to make a chocolate mousse. You like chocolate mousse, and so you agree with the author of the article that the end in view is good. You also accept the author's proposed means for attaining the end, his recipe. But you're a male reader who never goes into the kitchen, and so you do not make a mousse. Does this invalidate our point? It does not, although it does indicate an important distinction between types of practical books that should be mentioned. With regard to the ends proposed by the authors of such works, these are sometimes general or universal, applicable to all human beings, and sometimes applicable only to a certain portion of human beings. If the end is universal, as it is, for example, with this book, which maintains that all persons should read better, not just some, then the implication discussed in this section applies to every reader. If the end is selective, applying only to a certain class of human beings, then the reader must decide whether or not he belongs to that class. If he does, then the implication applies to him, and he is more or less obligated to act in the ways specified by the author. If he does not, then he may not be so obligated. We say, may not be so obligated, because there's a strong possibility that the reader may be fooling himself, or misunderstanding his own motives, 
in deciding that he does not belong to the class to which the end is relevant. In the case of the reader of the article about chocolate mousse, he is probably, by his inaction, expressing his view that although mousse is admittedly delicious, someone else, perhaps his wife, should be the one to make it. And in many cases, we concede the desirability of an end and the feasibility of the means, but in one way or another express our reluctance to perform the action ourselves. Let someone else do it, we say, more or less explicitly. This, of course, is not primarily a reading problem, but rather a psychological one. Nevertheless, the psychological fact has bearing on how effectively we read a practical book, and so we've discussed the matter here.